Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Several months ago, I received a phone call. It was an investment broker. I don't really know how he'd got my number, but he was describing to me an amazing opportunity where I could get in at the ground floor. Biotech companies were getting into the vaccine space in a big way, he told me. And there was one in particular that had a massive upside. It had already seen major growth in the last few months and their COVID-19 vaccine candidate was looking promising. So there was much more upside to go. If I got in now, then I'd be assured of massive returns. Now, I have about as much investment savvy as the weekly lotto player, but I did have to admit, it sounded compelling. Having worked on an MBA a few years ago, I knew how to interpret the investment prospectus of a company. So I got on the web and did some of my own research. Sure enough, the company did sound promising, but they'd never made a profit. The share price had been through wild swings, as every previous vaccine candidate was talked up and the price rose, but then crashed down when it turned out to be another failure. Then I got to the section on risks, which is one of the standard sections of a company investor's prospectus. The list just seemed to go on and on. There were dozens of risks, all of which threatened to either ruin the company or certainly reduce any investment to pennies on the dollar. Yeah, thanks but no thanks, I thought and moved on. On the day of that phone call, the share price of the company was around 18 US dollars per share. Just four months later, each share was worth 180 US dollars. This is an episode about regret. I touched on it back in episode 13, on making decisions, where I promised that we'd come back to it. It's taken a while, but here it is. So I missed out on the opportunity to make quite a bit of money, so it would be natural to think that I regret the decision not to invest in that stock. But how about the opposite scenario? Let's say I had some money invested in it already, but then decided the share price was only going to go down, so I sold my shares, and then found out a few months later that I'd missed out on this 10x increase in share value. In the case that actually happened to me, I missed the opportunity through inaction. But in this latter scenario, it was the action of selling the shares that led to the missed opportunity. So which scenario do you think would lead to more regret? Nobel Prize-winning economist Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who together authored the bestseller Thinking Fast and Slow, conducted pretty much just this experiment, and they found that people tended to feel more regret was associated with a failed action than inaction. This gives me a little comfort. It could have been worse, but unfortunately, this isn't really the case when we look at regret more broadly. A research psychologist at the forefront of research into the emotion of regret, Thomas Gilovich, has conducted numerous studies since Kahneman Tversky's early work. And virtually all of it has found the opposite. People regret inaction more than they regret action. Before we get into that research, let's just take a moment to think about this simple question. What do you most regret in life? Your answer is going to be characterised by a few factors, and one is most certainly temporal. If you recently experienced a situation in which you acted in a way which led to some harm on yourself or someone else, it's likely that your regret will relate to that action that was taken. But for most of us, our regrets are the things that we didn't do. And what do you think the most common regret is? Think about your biggest regret again. For most people, it is a failure to explore some aspect of their personal development 
typically academic, but it could be through some other type of opportunity which would have allowed them to grow in some way. Interestingly, this finding seems to hold between men and women, and across cultures and even across social classes. It is not influenced by socio-economic status, that is, money. So it's something of a universal to the human condition. We collectively regret the things we didn't do. If something is ubiquitous to people, then there must be some underlying psychology behind why this is the case, something inherent to how we think and process information and make sense of our worlds. So what is that psychological mechanism? This is the question that Gilovich and others have been asking for the last few decades, and the results are intriguing. We first need to consider self-discrepancy theory. This was introduced by psychologist E. Tory Higgins in 1987. Higgins describes people as possessing three versions of the self, the actual, the ideal, and the ought self. The actual self is you right now. It encompasses all of the attributes you currently possess. You have an image in your mind, though, of the ideal self, who you would like to be, and the attributes that constitute that ideal. And finally, you have an image of an ought self. That's a vision of yourself that possesses the attributes which you ought to have. Perhaps your ideal self is more outgoing and has a better sense of humour than your actual self, but your ought self is kinder and more compassionate. Higgins believed the dissonance between the actual Ideal and ought selves leads to psychological discomfort and negative emotions and behaviour. It's like we know who we want to be and who we should be, but we are stuck being us and we feel powerless to do anything about it. This may or may not be true in actuality, but it's how the individual attempts to reconcile this conflict which speaks to the level of psychological well-being the individual ultimately possesses. So how does this apply to regret? We can think of this in relation to regrets of action and inaction again. So let's break it down into the two types. The regrets of not achieving the ideal self-image, that is, of not realising our hopes and dreams, our goals and aspirations. These are regrets of inaction. And then there's the regrets of not meeting the image of the ought self, where we let down others or fail to live up to expectations and fail in our responsibilities. These often relate to regrets of action. We did not behave in a way that met the attributes desired of the ought self. Clearly, both types of regrets lead to discomfort, but in different ways. Gilovich describes the regrets of action as leading to hot emotions, which I kind of visualise as red, things like anger, irritation, frustration and disgust, while regrets of inaction lead to cold emotions. These are feelings of sadness, loss, despair and emptiness. These I see as blue. The hot emotions are more urgent, this may be even spontaneous, they make our blood boil, and they demand rapid resolution. So let's apply this in relation to regrets of action. You did something you regret. Of course, this could span a broad range of consequences, but generally speaking, when you do something regrettable, you want to resolve the conflict of the hot emotions you feel, so you work quickly to do just that. This might begin simply by offering an apology. I'm sorry for what I did. Just as the action taken led to regret, further actions follow which attempt to minimise the extent of that regret. You work to realise the vision of the ought self that was compromised by the regrettable action that was taken. There's a lot of psychological work that is going on here. It may not only be that you work to minimise the harm caused to others, you may also begin to rationalise. It wasn't really that bad. I learned a lot from the experience. It taught me about life, about myself. If it wasn't for that situation, then I never would have learned A, B or C or found this new opportunity. Regrets of action also tend to diminish as time passes. 
when we look back on our lives and see episodes we regret. Time has dulled those hot emotions. We see the situation in a wider context. It just wasn't as significant in the end. We were young, brash, excitable. It's just what people do sometimes. We pull down our rose-tinted spectre optimisticals and reflect on our journey through its highs and lows and let go of our ought self and accept that our actual self is only human after all. And this process actually happens quite quickly. But cold emotions, they tend to linger. The what-ifs, the shouldas and couldas leave a bit of taste. Because there are really psychological benefits to not acting. What did we learn by not taking an opportunity? By not taking a leap of faith or by just giving it a shot, for better or for worse? We learned only that our actual self is a long way from our ideal self. And this realisation hurts. It hurts more than the action we took that failed to pan out. Because we can get over that, but we can never replace the empty space left by the things that we didn't do. And there's something else. The ought self tells us how we should act. But it's often not about what we should do, but what we shouldn't do, how we shouldn't behave. The ought self is characterised by constraint and restriction. To become our ought self is more about avoiding actions, which is inherently easier to do. We can't regret the bad things we didn't do, but to become our ideal self requires taking positive steps to move in that direction, and this is much harder. One of the founding fathers of social psychology, Kurt Lewin, described this as the inertia of action and inaction. It's easier to maintain a state of equilibrium. It takes almost no effort to maintain the status quo. To take action, though, requires lifting oneself up and pushing forward against the psychological forces that resist us. The initial effort required can be immense to overcome the inertia of being stationary, like pushing a locomotive at rest. It requires a lot of talk to get its wheels turning. Chugger, chugger, chugger. But eventually, once it is in motion, its inertia keeps it moving. And once action is taken, even if it is a regrettable action, it's easy to take further action and begin to set things straight again. It's like we are primed by default not to act through the tension of being at rest, but this tension leads only to greater regrets later in life when we realise how much we missed. As I talked about in that episode on decisions, once the decision is made, life is thrown into turmoil. There are a million and one things to think about, micro-decisions that must be made, actions that must be taken, and all of this is unsettling. There is a psychological consequence to upsetting the equilibrium. And for some, that sense of movement makes them feel alive. For others, though, the stress is overpowering. But somewhere down that path, sooner or later, the dust begins to settle and equilibrium returns. And with that comes satisfaction, contentment and a sense of accomplishment. Sometimes these decisions are forced upon us, but sometimes we take those leaps of our own accord. The result, though, is often the same. Eventually, we will return to a balance and the inertia will fade slowly as we come to a stop and any regrets associated with that momentum will begin to fade, and in time we are left only with memories of a life lived. Regrets from actions taken are precise, tangible, able to be cradled in the mind's eye and reflected upon with a beginning, a middle, and an end. All in good time, of course. But regrets of inaction are not normally so clearly defined. They are more often patterns of behaviour, they are trends, that non-specific reflections on an ideal that was never realised. I've just finished one of the most moving books I've read in a long time, which I really implore you to seek out and immerse yourself in, and come back to it regularly to ensure its messages remain close at hand. 
It's called Top 5 Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Weir. Bronnie was a palliative care worker. She worked with those in the final stages of their lives. And during those final days and weeks, Bronnie would listen quietly and chat as the patient reflected on their lives and the choices they'd made and those that they hadn't. And over time, she began to recognise that many of their stories had a lot in common. Bronnie's story is touching and powerful, perhaps most significantly, because in it she fulfills the promise she made to many of those in her care to pass on the lessons learned so that we, the living, may avoid lying on our deathbeds with the same regrets. You really have to listen or read this book, but here's a few excerpts which summarise a couple of the stories and lessons passed on to us through Bronnie's work. It took no time at all for Grace to become one of my favourite palliative clients. She was a tiny woman with a huge heart. She had raised lovely children and now rejoiced in the lives of her grandchildren as they lived through their teenage years. Her husband had apparently been a bit of a tyrant though, making married life for Grace very unpleasant for decades. It was a relief for everyone, especially Grace, when he had been admitted into a nursing home permanently, just a few months before. Grace had spent her married life dreaming of living independently from her husband, of travelling, not living under his dictatorship, and mostly just living a simple, happy life. Although she was in her 80s, she had still been fit and healthy for her age. Good health gives such freedom of mobility, and this had been the case for her when her husband was admitted into the nursing home. Within a short time of a newfound and long-awaited freedom, Grace began to feel very ill. A few days after this turning point, she was diagnosed with terminal illness, already quite advanced. The dream she had waited all of her life to live were never going to happen. It was too late. The anguish she suffered over this was ongoing, tormenting her enormously. Why didn't I just do what I wanted? Why did I let him rule me? Why wasn't I strong enough? Questions I heard repeatedly. She was so angry with herself for not having found the courage. Her children confirmed the hard life she had experienced, and their hearts went out to her, as did mine. Don't you ever let anyone stop you doing what you want, Bronnie, she said. Promise that to this dying woman, please. I promised, and went on to explain how I was fortunate to have an amazing mother who had taught me independence by example. Look at me now, Grace continued. Dying, dying. How can it be possible I've waited all of these years to be free and independent, and now it's too late? The lesson is to live a life true to yourself, not what others expect of you. This was a regret of inaction, so powerful and tragic. Yet it wasn't one missed opportunity, it was a lifetime of missed opportunities. Grace had raised her family, so it wasn't all bad, but she died knowing she could have done more with her time had she had the courage to take action for herself. But decisions like that are among the hardest that we face in life. The inertia holding one in place in those circumstances is powerful. But it is not impossible to overcome. Grace's lesson is to be bold and to be brave and to do the hard things. In another lesson, Bronnie describes caring for John, who was dying of a terminal illness after a life of hard work with a lot of success. Bronnie writes, John stated, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, Bronnie. What a stupid fool I was. From the other lounge chair on the balcony, I looked across at him. He needed no encouragement to continue. I worked too damn hard, and now I'm a lonely, dying man. The worst part is that I have been lonely for the whole of my retirement, and I need not have been. John and Margaret had raised five children. When all of the children were adults and gone from the home, Margaret asked John to retire. They were both fit and healthy, and had enough money behind them to retire well. 
He always said they might need more. Margaret replied each time that they could sell their huge, now almost empty house and buy something more suitable, freeing up more money. For 15 years this battle went on between them, while he kept working. Margaret was lonely and longed to discover their partnership again without children or work. For years she devoured travel brochures, suggesting different countries and regions to visit. John shared the desire to travel and was open to wherever Margaret suggested. Unfortunately, he also enjoyed the status his work gave him. He told me he didn't particularly like the work itself, just the role it gave him in society and among his friends. The chase of closing a deal had also become a bit of an addiction. One evening with Margaret in tears, begging him to finally retire, he looked at this beautiful woman and realised that not only was she desperately lonely for his company, but they were both old people now. Although petrified for reasons he could not justify now, he agreed to retire. Margaret had jumped up and hugged him, her tears switching from sadness to joy. But the smile didn't last long, disappearing the minute, he added, in one more year. At that time, there was a new deal being negotiated in the company, and he wanted to see it through. She had waited 15 years for him to retire. Surely she could wait one more. It was a compromise, but one she reluctantly agreed to. As the sun dropped from view, John told me he felt selfish about his choice even then, but he couldn't retire without doing just one more deal. Margaret died three months before John was due to retire. John said, I think I was scared. Yes, I was. I was petrified. My role had come to define me in a way. Of course, now as I sit here dying, I see that just being a good person is more than enough in life. Why do we depend so much on the material will to validate us? It's a wonderful book, and in it you'll discover many more poignant moments of reflection. But regrets are inevitable. They're a part of life however admirably we live it. Because regrets come from a sense of personal responsibility. We don't regret the things we could not control, the action taken that just didn't work out because of a reason beyond our control. Regrets originate in moments of reflection where we consider what could have been. For some, regrets will trouble them deeply. The highly motivated may reel at their failure to achieve their higher self-actualizing goals. But often regrets are about the people left behind as we focused on the things we thought were most important to us, as John did in his successful professional life. We can't not make mistakes and go down the wrong road from time to time, but we also don't need to wait until our dying days to realize how we could have lived a happier, more fulfilling life. Today is a better day to reflect on that than your last. Unfortunately, we live in a time in which the potential for regret is broad. Just think of the choices we have today compared to the previous generations. Not too long ago, marriages were arranged. Social class defined the expected path through life, career, friends and family aspirations. Material goods were not so plentiful. There were literally fewer choices to be made and thus less opportunities for regret. So we close with something of a paradox. We regret most that which we didn't do. Yet we are faced with so many choices and so much opportunity that it seems we are doomed to regret our inactions simply because we can only do so much. The answer then doesn't lie in doing everything, wildly leaping into everything that comes our way, although there's always a time and a place in every person's life when that is just the thing to do. But rather, we should consider the things that make us scared and excited at the same time. We perform best under stress, measured, calculated stress, It's there that we find our greatest sense of fulfillment when we live through something difficult. 
And that is the key lesson of this episode. Remember, we regret most the things we didn't do. One day, we will all face our own mortality and, hopefully, have the opportunity to reflect on our lives. What self do you want to be then? And who are you now? It is your life, and they will be your regrets alone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the Here and Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>